Coming to you from Dunwoody United Methodist Church in Atlanta, Georgia, it's Ask Science Mike Live! Welcome to Ask Science Mike, the weekly podcast where I answer your questions about science, faith, and life. I'm on tour right now promoting my new book, Finding God in the Waves, on October 21st. We'll be in Chicago, October 25th, Fruitland Park, Florida, November 2nd, Kansas, November 6th, Savannah, Georgia, November 11th, Costa Mesa, November 12th, Glendale, November 13th, Los Angeles, November 20th, Portland, November 21st, Tacoma, November 26th, Thomasville, November 30th, Boston. More dates after that. So if you'd like to see me on tour, go to findinggodinthewaves.com slash tour. But for now, we've got a podcast to do, so let's get it started. Uh, hi, my name is Donnie. Hey, Donnie. Uh, I want to start by saying thank you so much for all you do, um, uh, especially your book. I've heard you actually apologize to some of your avid fans for talking about your book so much. Yes. Because you feel like we already know it all. True. Um, and I want to say as somebody who's followed your podcast, The Liturgist, listened consistently and read the book, um, it still was new and it was still fresh and it was still really inspiring and amazing. So thank you. Thank you. Um, I'm a pastor. Um, and I want to start my question with an important footnote. Uh, many people have been genuinely hurt by pastors and church leaders mm. in unthinkable, inexcusable ways. And I in no way mean to minimize uh, those men or women or the feelings that they um, have had. Um, and yet, um, I feel like people expect so much from pastors. Uh, vulnerable yet untouchable, sinless <laughs> yet authentic, experts on money, sex, the Bible, relationships, and theology. And there's often very little grace for me. Often I have to answer questions with a no or tell people the direction they're going isn't the direction we are going, or especially in music, as I'm a worship pastor, tell them they are not as gifted as they think they um, might be <laughs> at whatever that thing is, and um, try to do it in a gracious and careful way and loving way, and yet it never works. Uh, people are consistently offended, consistently take their ball and go home, consistently tell me, however I handled it, it was wrong. Mm -hmm. Uh, my question then is, neurologically speaking, or any insight you have, how do you tell someone something they don't want to hear, especially when it's personal, and have them receive it with the gentleness it was intended? I think that's my question. Second part of the question is that you playing bass on the intro. It is not me playing bass on the intro. I've always wondered that. That is my dog, Jeb Botterford, who played every instrument on the theme song. I'm going to answer that because I can vamp and think. Cause you you curve the question at the last second. So I had an answer spooled off based on where I thought the question was going, and then you changed it, which is kind of cheating. It's cool. Uh, this show was not my idea. This show, people who listen to the Liturgist podcast started emailing me and tweeting me and saying, hey, can you talk about more science on the Liturgist podcast? And I said, no, because then it's just a science podcast. Like, so they said, like, we'll start another podcast where you answer science questions like one a week. And I was like, no one would listen. And they're like, we'll listen. And there's like 10 of us. It's like, fair point. <laughs> so I started the podcast and I said, who would be interested in a weekly Q&A show about science hosted by me? And, you know, like a couple hundred of you retweeted that. So I was like, oh, so there's more than a dozen. 
And so I, I called Jeb, and I was like, I need a theme song. And he, he wrote and recorded that theme song in like two hours. So Jeb's awesome. Uh, but I didn't play bass because I'm terrible. On your actual question, it's tough. And it's especially tough for pastors. What we understand neurologically is what people believe about God happens in the same parts of the brain where their sense of identity comes from. What you believe about God is almost uniquely attached to how you view yourself and how you process the world. And then you take a pastor whose job is what? It's like God's hype man, right? So we take these people who are like representatives of God and we have them form communities. And here's the funny thing about a community that's centered around beliefs about God. They have like double extra plus benefit compared to normal communities from what you get from communities. You get a stronger sense of identity. You get a stronger sense of belonging. And when you join a church that you feel like you belong in, you get a shift in personal happiness that is similar statistically to going from the bottom quartile of income to the top quartile of income. That's crazy. That's a lot of emotional benefit. And it's beautiful until it goes wrong. And when it goes wrong, this, what used to be like amplified goodness becomes amplified pain. And now psychologists are studying a unique form of PTSD that's formed by spiritual experiences. It's crazy how much it hurts us when church goes wrong. It honestly, I've noticed this is not science. This is personal anecdote. So don't ask me for this study on Twitter. Um, but I've noticed that the emotional fallout with a pastor or church community can be similarly disruptive in people's lives to a divorce. And I think both have similar roots. We put too high expectations on spouses and on our faith communities. Now, don't get me wrong. Churches do horrible things. Truly abusive, authoritarian, probably should be illegal kind of things. My entire career at this point in my life, this author, podcaster, is primarily talking to people who have been hurt so bad by the church they won't go anymore, but still have some longing for God. So don't hear for a second that I have anything but exquisite empathy, but I've also seen in non-authoritarian contexts, simple dis disagreements uh, blow up into situations where people feel grievously wounded by their church. And I know too many pastors who get wrecked by that. I don't know if you've looked at the burnout rate on pastors. It's, uh, there's not a lot of little kids going, one day I want to be a pastor, right? Like, it's a tough job. I mean, look at the degree to which people are doing identity formation and ego validation at church, which is not a bad thing. Where else can the average person stand on stage and sing in front of people? Right? Where else? Karaoke. That's it. That's it. Karaoke, it's okay if you're terrible, 
the entire audience is plastered. At church, only like a third of the audience is plastered. And so the... the that's great. I had people covering their mouth right there. That's good. That one landed. You know, there's higher expectation, but the, I'm an author now. Do you know the first place I was published as a writer? The church newsletter. The church newsletter is the first time someone ever published my writing and sent it around to other people. It was pre-blog. So people in vulnerability, in growth, like they want to offer something to the community that also happens to make them feel like they have worth. And, uh, and then it doesn't work. Like, you feel full of the Spirit of God, and you literally never hit the pitch of any note in the entire song. And you have this amazing worship experience, and your eyes are closed, so you can't see people doing like this right? Or you feel like, like the Spirit of God has put a word in you that must be spoken as so you stand up in Bible study and just express this incredible truth about how cats are the incarnation of the Holy Spirit. And like you feel so close to God in that moment, and everybody goes, well, that was, was it interesting. And then there's this fear right? And then so, what's the work of the church? What's the work of the church? To offer healing to the broken. Broken people are actually pretty hard to be around. Their stuff's all messed up. They're rough around the edges. They cry too often. They're socially awkward. They're drunk at church, right? Like all these things. Like the the church is a gathering of people who are messed up, but we're Americans, right? So our churches happen with excellence. We get like the best singers who like they sing the, like like our worship leader sings the national anthem at the local sport thing. I'm not in sports. I couldn't think of a specific sport, (laughs) right? That's, that's, that's our caliber. Like our, our musicians, they're so, they're, they're in, they're going to music school. Like they we just have the best people in our community and uh, everything, the focus becomes on what's like the best execution. And where does that congregational expectation get placed? On the pastor. So you have a pastor. I'm trying to give everybody empathy here. I, I hope I've established that people who are doing something badly in your church, it's coming from a place of vulnerability and desire to serve. Are you with me there? So now other people say, well, I don't have that many hours in the week, and I definitely don't have that many hours on the weekend. I'm not listening to tone-deaf people sing, pastor. So eight people say that, and four of them are big tithers. And let's be honest, church, none of you tithe. And, like, there's a mortgage payment. There's a mortgage payment to create this space for healing. And so no one tithes, but these four people tithe, And they're like, we would really prefer contestants from The Voice. (laughs) So now you have a pastor who has to think about the building payment, keeping a congregation showing up, which is hard today. It's kind of counter every statistic in our, our society. Churches don't grow. 
churches shrink and close down. And the fact that people are undergoing the messy process of healing and spiritual growth. It's impossible. What's the right thing for the pastor to do? Let's look at some scenarios. Hey, four tithers, we're about honesty and vulnerability here. That's cool. There's another church literally across the street who'd be happy to have my money. Hey, singer, I love your giftedness, but we, this, is, this is just not the place for you to sing right now. I've been rejected by the first place I felt like I belong in my life. That's the problem. What's the solution? I think it starts with the congregation. Can we all make a commitment that the church is a hospital? Can we make a commitment that we don't have pews? We have hospital beds? And that terminally ill people smell funny? Right? Can we, can we understand that, that, that the lame can't dance well? The point of this institution formed by this Jesus we think is so special is to be the source of healing in this world, a unique place of unconditional love. So what do I do? I tell my pastor how great things are. And I celebrate when the music is bad. You know why? Because a bunch of people decide to show up and sing. So part of the pastor dilemma starts with the congregation making a decision to support their pastor. I don't mean the pastor gets a blank check. If the pastor says, we're as a church going to do this thing, and it's just, you just know in your heart it's abusive and authoritarian, that's not what I mean. That's not what I mean. But I mean in the messy details of making a building full of people in America today possible. We lower our expectations on the pastor and increase the amount of encouragement and affirmation we offer, which gives you, hopefully, the space to have completely different conversations. Now, sometimes something has to be said. If 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 the sound person, literally, it's just 55 minutes of squealing feedback. You know what I mean? It works. You're making the face. 55 minutes of that. 55 minutes of that. There's got to be some conversation, right? I have a really simple mandate for everything I say to people all the time. I communicate honestly without hostility. So the only time I wait to say something is if I know I can't say it without hostility. That's, that's when I have to wait. When I haven't done the self-development work to pull out hostility, then I've got to wait. I'm relatively successful on this. Just don't follow me on Twitter. Uh, but in person, I'm much better at it. Some of you got that in a big way. Um, but you wait till the hostility's gone. But difficult conversations don't actually age well. They don't age well at all. So you're like, well, I'll just wait and see. No, don't wait and see. Uh, communicate honestly and without hostility as soon as 
you can. And I always start, um, you know, talking about the neuroscience, validating people. And everything I can do um, to talk about a problem and look for a solution together. Like, I can't, for example, I literally can't talk about sound at our church because I'm probably the most talented sound engineer in the church and have zero time to volunteer at church because I travel on the road for a living. So if there were sound problems at my church, I'm never going to be like, you guys really got to do better unless I'm willing to show up at least once a month. Um, but but as, we, as we look at this neurologically, you're trying to avoid activating people's amygdala, a sense of fear or anger. And to do that, it means you have to enter and maintain a, st- a state of empathy with that person. And you have to... Is that thunder? Oh, okay. I was like, wow, God doesn't like that part. Um, that's... Because that's what God does. God listens to my podcast and then sends thunder if he doesn't like something. He. Uh, so so we, we're, we're embodying a state of empathy with another person. And when you, when you create trust relationships like that, I know friendships are good when a friend says to me, that really hurt my feelings. Like, that's the goal where we're trying to get with relationships with everyone is so that we immediately can be honest about our experience with what people say. Uh, I told my wife a few years ago that I didn't believe in God anymore and that it was no big deal. And it it, it had only been like two years since I believed in God. Um, And that was a really terrible conversation. The closest my marriage has ever come to ending. Because I waited two years. And then she feels like... who are you, right? But ever since then, since my wife and I have almost divorced over what we believe about God, amazing that that's a sentence I can say, uh, now we just like tell each other stuff kind of in real time. Hey, that just really frustrated me. Okay, tell me about that, right? And when you create that space for communication, what people want most of all, I believe, and I think I, think I can back this up with, at least psychological research, if not neurological, is to be heard, is to be known. And then sometimes, despite your best effort, people are still going to be hurt. People are still going to get hurt. Anytime you have more than one person involved in a situation, there is the potential for serious misunderstanding. And it happens to me. that uh, I got a two-star Amazon review. First one of my life, two-star Amazon review. And... The person like goes, I loved the first half of this book, and I think the second half destroyed my faith. And like then she, she talked about like, like really vulnerably, like the hurt she felt reading the second half of my book. And they have this thing, they tell you when, with a publisher, don't read your Amazon reviews. <laughs> and you definitely never reply to an Amazon review ever. So I replied to that Amazon review. <laughs> and I said, this was my biggest fear in writing this book. You have just told me my biggest fear that being honest about 
What it takes for someone to leave Christianity and become an atheist is new information for some Christians. And so I, I was just your Richard Dawkins. <laughs> and I want you to know I'm sorry, deeply and sincerely. And I'm also wrong all the time. So if there's anything in the book, if you want to email me and tell me things that tripped you up, I promise you, I can find you five books for each point you make that will convince you I'm totally wrong about whatever I said. I, 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 I can do that. Because what do I care about? I don't care about being an author. I, I, if, I, if I was drawn to money, I would have stayed in advertising. I don't know if you know this. Podcasting is not a real lucrative business. Um, but I care about addressing human suffering and human need. And in that process, with the best possible intentions and incredible self-sacrifice, I broke someone's heart. So I said I was sorry just as deeply and as sincerely and as personally as I could. And she accepted my apology, but not everyone does. And some of those people I know I see online that my work has hurt them and I'm not able to reach them, they are little ghosts that dance around my psyche. They're people I think about all the time. How do I speak honestly and authentically and carefully, I'm still learning. And that's ultimately where we have to get as a church. Maybe as a culture, but I think it has to start with the church. He's understanding that we are all idiots trying to figure out how to get through life without hurting other people. Hi, thanks. My name's Chad. Uh, Mike, just wanted to thank you for your sincerity. Um, in telling your story over the podcast and, you know, both uh, Ask Science Mike and also um, uh, The Liturgist. So my question might be a little bit different than others. I'm an unconventional Christian. <laughs> yeah, that's what this room is. Don't worry. <laughs> and uh, I wondered, um, question about your future. Do you think you might ever find a point where you could find a blending of three things? First, science, where God often is seen as a force. Mm-hmm to philosophy, where he's often seen as a unity of values, yes. and three, religion, where he's often seen as a spirit of love. Mm. So the question is, will I ever reconcile the different understandings of God between science, philosophy, and religion? No big deal. Okay, it's going to be that kind of night. <laughs> Here's an unanswered question the smartest people in the world wrestle with. What's your completely uninformed opinion? be happy to give it to you. Uh, Yeah, the God I see in science is like a force. It's not like the force, right? It's not like Star Wars. There's no midichlorians. Um, There should have never been midichlorians. (laughs) Some of you got that. Uh, God's not like the force. Like most Christians would call Einstein an atheist. Let's be real clear. But Einstein talked about God. And that's the God of science, a a, a consistent set of rules and behaviors that make reality possible, which is amazing. For me, uh, that was my first understanding of God after my my beach experience. And to be able to say, I believe in God, like with a little asterisk, and then Einstein's God, it didn't matter. (laughs) I could use the phrase, I believe in God, 
And for some reason, that was an important thing to me. And I cared about that. And that was comforting. But there was this kind of, there's this grinding gear that physics doesn't answer prayer. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, dear protons, <laughs> neutrons, and electrons, really need a good bar- parking space right now. So if you could probabilistically collapse from waveforms into an empty parking space that I can put my car into, praise be to Stephen Hawking. Right? Like, it just doesn't work. And then, so I, so then you, uh, then I got kind of into like the philosophy crowd and the, the- Theo philosophy, like, um, like the ground of being, where God is being itself. Yeah, that sounds real clever. I'm in. God's not a being. God's being itself. Checkmate, atheists, right? That's an internet joke. Man, sorry. I got to like switch up to more mainstream humor at some point in my career. Uh, but like this, God's not, God's not a being. God's being itself, which sounds actually to me relatively compatible with like singularity physics, Einstein stuff. So that's good. That's good. Theology. God is love. Huge problem here. There, the bridge to Terabithia is closed. Uh, <laughs> so apparently right here, everyone gets all the jokes. And right there is like, what? this guy is messed up. Right, so this, this idea that God is love um, is not scientific. It doesn't actually hold up very well in philosophy. Some of you have heard me say this. Martin Luther King said, the moral arc of the universe bends toward justice. No. There's no evidence in science that the moral arc of the universe bends toward justice. If you wanted to have a good scientific claim you could defend, you could say, the moral arc of the universe bends toward increasing entropy. Or the moral arc of the universe bends toward chaos. So if entropic heat death is your idea of justice, then yes, the moral arc of the universe bends toward justice. So now I want you to imagine this man who's calling out one of the gravest sins in American history, and it's so sad we can only say one of, because slavery was just one of the awful things we did to create this country. There was the whole native genocide thing, right? So, so Martin Luther King stands in opposition to that. And can you imagine if in his speech he said there is hope because the moral arc of the universe bends toward entropic heat death? I just want you to picture it right now on televisions across America where people of color, especially black families, are suffering under a systematic institutional racism of segregation born from the Jim Crow South. How does that give them hope, even though it is extraordinarily factually accurate? And here's the problem. Science tells me the bridge from God is love to the ground of being does not get crossed with language. Science tells me that. 
because people who contemplate an idea that God is love, anyone who says that with conviction, you put them in a brain scanner and you say, think about God. Imagine God right now. And the part of their brain responsible for love gets really active, the anterior cingulate cortex. The part of the brain responsible for verbal processing, the left temporal lobe, doesn't. And if you ask someone then to not think of God, but to describe God, you can watch as the left temporal lobe and the prefrontal cortex, which is responsible for rational thinking, starts up, and the part of the brain responsible for love gets dimmer. And the process of trying to describe who God is or how God is love actually modifies the brain state associated with God. It turns out the brain states most associated with powerful and life-changing religious experiences are relatively incompatible with both language and our rational brain components. They're, they don't work well. It's like, it's like trying to run an Android app on your iPhone. It just doesn't. Boy, I thought that one would be great. <laughs> I was real proud of that joke and that analogy, and it just flat on its face in this room. It's like trying to have the Seminoles play at the Braves Stadium. Is that worse? It's the only two sports teams I could think of, because I live in Tallahassee, and this is Atlanta, and the Braves are here, yeah? This is, I learned like two weeks ago that the Chicago Cubs were a baseball team, two weeks ago. I'm not kidding. So, but it just, it just doesn't work. It has to be, neurologically speaking, discovered through a mystery that is experienced. I was talking to a friend this weekend, and he said, I just, I'm so jealous of you because I read your book, and like you actually love Jesus. That's a thing. Like you experience love and affection for Jesus and for God, and I've gotten to the point, I understand what you talk about God as the ground of being, but how, I can't love that. But if God is love, then to love God is to love love itself, which is absurd. It's absurd. But to realize that in every moment that love is expressed and felt and given, God is present. To realize that in Christian theology, uh, we tend to minimize the Trinity in modern American Christianity, but it's, I've become such a Trinity nerd. Thank you, Richard Rohr. Uh, the, the, this idea that there's a Christ, and the Christ is the part of the Trinity that is always drawing creation towards reconciliation and peace. That's Christ, which means there's also an Antichrist, which is anything which pushes away from peace and reconciliation with the ground of being, with love itself. When I contemplate that, it changes my life. It means whether or not I'm affected by a given 
social issue personally, if I am a Christian who follows Christ, it is my job at all times to invite all of creation towards peace and reconciliation and healing. And that changes my life regardless of the scientific and philosophic connections. It's, it's the contemplation of Christ that makes me a white guy who talks about racism all the time. Even though, frankly, most white audiences get really tired of it. They're like, hey, talk more about brain science and less about systemic racism. It's, it's that Christ in me that whenever I see injustice or suffering, it says you must respond. So I can scientifically validate that practice through neuroscience, but I can't solve the great mystery. And if I could, it seems like in brain science, it would stop working. That's the crazy thing. In order for God to truly compel us and our brains, in some way, God must be mysterious. What a remarkable finding from the world of neuroscience. Which, by the way, it's not, they're not like uh, seminary appointees, right? Most of these people aren't Christians at all. They just like to study brains. And I've learned to enjoy the mystery. When I was a Baptist, I was a Baptist because through my Baptist faith, I understood everything about the world and everything about God, and I had an answer to everything I was really, really certain about. And then I became an atheist. Do you know why? So Southern Baptists statistically have the second lowest defection rate of any denomination. The only people who have less defections are Mormons. So Southern Baptists are the, of the mainstream Christian denominations have the lowest defection rates. But statistically, they produce the most atheists. Because atheists and Baptists have the same addiction to be right and to be certain. <laughs> now, don't get me wrong. I very much think there is a silent majority of atheists who are basically like mainline atheists who are like, I don't care what you think. Whatever. Whatever gets you through the day, that's great. I just don't have a belief about God. Whatever. I'm talking about like the new atheists, the, the evangelical atheists, right? That's a thing. And they have the same zeal. Science taught me how to be certain about everything. And in both of those worldviews, I was just a real jerk. I felt, even if I wouldn't tell people I was right and they were wrong, I felt it. And now, today, as an empiricist, <laughs> non-theist, Christian, mystic blender of labels, I don't know anything. <laughs> I could never stand around people and be like, hey, I figured it all out again. I've been wrong about literally everything twice. <laughs> Not once, twice I figured out my absolute base assumptions about reality were incorrect. <laughs> so what's left? To wake up every morning and receive a gift of life and awareness and breath. And the contemplation of a mystery I don't understand means that I want to devote every breath and every energy of every breath towards being Christ in this world and not Antichrist.
Um, my name is Anne Murray. I wanted to start out by saying thank you from um, the queer community, which I'm a part of, um, your podcast and your affirmation of like who we are and that it's okay for us to exist in the church is like, oh my God, thank you. Um, my question um, is about globalization mm -hmm. and the possible end of the world. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's an ass science mic night. Um, I know that um, I have a hunter-gatherer brain. Mm -hmm. um, I also know that there are many parts uh, of the contemporary world that are hunter-gathering communities. Like, mm -hmm. I've studied um, Kung San in Namibia. Mm -hmm. um, the Balinese are not hunting-gathering, but they're being pushed into modernity, and it's, like, destroying them. Yes. Um, and the whole community of globalization seems to be caught in this tension of, like, like, we're all trying to be hunter-gatherers and survive and, like, like love each other. Um, but, like, we can't. Like, I feel subverted at, like, most every turn. Mm -hmm. um, and it feels like that structure can't and won't hold. Like, even this presidential election, it just feels like, like everything's going to fall apart, like, tomorrow. Um, so I'm wondering, um, is there, like, how to exist within that? And then, like, like, are those structures going to collapse? Are we going to be able to evolve? Is, is there kind of, like, hope for this, this thing that's just kind of, it doesn't seem to be working? Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Makes a lot of sense. <laughs> Unfortunately, I understand the question, yeah. Um, so, I'll tell you a story. A man who works in advertising, who feels already unqualified to do that because he's, like, a computer programmer, who start working on advertising, starts a podcast. And every question's welcome. The expectation is, mainly former evangelicals who are learning about science for the first time will ask really easy science questions. He can just knock across the plate. And instead, a bunch of people smarter than the host of the podcast start sending in questions like that. <laughs> that I go... Uh, who's smarter than me, I could call. Um, we are certainly at a crossroads. Our brains developed to exist in societies of about 150 people. That's what our brains are set up for, 150 individuals. By the way, you never really have more than 150 friends, right? You really only have like five close friends at a time, and your brain constantly like decides like, who's in that circle, and then like keeps a really detailed map of them, and other people fall like into the next layer, which is 15, right? And then the next layer, which is 45, and the next layer, which is 100, and then like the very fringe is 150, and you might be able to remember 1,500 faces, and your brain's constantly doing housekeeping. Who do I see? How often? Who do I not see very much but want to impress so I remember more about them? Not consciously, you just do that. And the way we were able to jump past 150 people is we created language, which let us build cultures of intersecting rings of 150-person networks. So by the way, understanding this makes social dynamics fascinating and make more sense. Why is it in the church there's always like this click of five people? Because they have brains, right? 
And they're like in a really big church. Like there's kind of like this group of 150 and this group of 150, and they have an overlap of like 10 people, right? And corporations, any organization of individuals. And we've done some amazing things. It's been a good run. Like, like I go on airplanes, I just sit in a tube of metal and like hurdle through the air at 500 miles an hour. That's a neat trick. You know what I mean? Like I have a slate of glass in my pocket that like magically through the air has the entire sum of human knowledge that I can just ask it by saying, hey, Siri. And so that's incredible. Uh, but we can also split the atom. <laughs> and that's pretty scary. So let's go one thing. We have hunter-gatherer brains. No problem. Well, if we all just become hunter-gatherers again. Cool. The carrying capacity for this planet of hunter-gatherers might be three million people. So <laughs> it could be a, a slightly rough transition period <laughs> where we convince like seven billion and change people to not exist anymore. Um, well, okay, so no big deal. We just agree to not bomb each other. That's going well. It's going real well. I mean, like, I think, like, literally right now, Russia has a nuclear sub off the coast of Poland. Like, right now. Like, posturing. Um, but let's suppose we, like, convince ourselves not to use nuclear weapons. Um, which, by the way, most people are good at math. Say that in any one year, we've got a pretty low chance of nuclear war. Uh, but low chances over and over become high chances. So like a lot of the experts think, like you probably can't go more than 150 years without a nuclear altercation. Uh, because another thing we know about Homo sapiens is they're the most violent species of primate on the planet. Much more likely to go to war than chimpanzees, who are the second place in that rather terrible Olympic game of violence. But let's say somehow we figure out how to not use nukes. Um, we've got 400 parts per million of CO2 in the atmosphere right now. It's already done. It's already done. There's already 400 parts per million thanks to a global industrial economy who's like, what we should do is take plankton that, that died and fossilized millions of years ago, just burn them. It's free energy. They got energy from the sun, so we can just get all that energy right at once. And uh, all we'll do is make the atmosphere like it was a few million years ago, before there were people. And which means there'll be, there'll be no ice on the planet, which sounds awesome. I hate cold. Like, I live in Florida for a reason. To me, Atlanta's the frozen north. <laughs> it's too cold here. Uh, so that sounds awesome, except all that water's going to go somewhere. So, <laughs> sorry, Miami. <laughs> right? We don't need Miami. Uh, so, you know, maybe eventually Tallahassee will be a coastal city again. Maybe eventually Tallahassee will be underwater again. We're at a real junction point. We're too smart for our own good. Primates that make iPhones. I mean, just, you know, like, and people are like, well, I don't think humans are primates. Turn on the news. Watch literally any panel of two screaming heads at each other and tell me humans aren't primates. I've actually done this. I've taken, I don't care, Fox News, MSNBC, CNN, I don't care, any of them. Pick your bias. And then play, and then play 
like Jane Goodall video of chimp confrontations at the same time on your computer. It's incredible. It's small government, right? Uh, internet people, I'm slapping my chest like a monkey. Um, so what do we do with primates that split the atom, primates that burn old plankton? Primates who, through their cognitive processes, think about their own needs, the need of their tribe of about 150 people. It's where you make your decisions. Of your 150 people that your brain thinks are important, undue importance is given to your children and your grandchildren, if you have them. What's best for my kids trumps everything. Trumps, ha <laughs> uh, won't do that again, promise. So, like, that's the most important thing. What's good for my kids and my grandkids? Good school zones, right? Like, a 401k? Like, you know, 8% of us do that well. Um, it's very limited things. So what's good for our children and our grandchildren turns out often to be terrible for our great-great-grandchildren. But we don't have the ability to think in a timeline that goes past a generation we might see face-to-face one day. And that's worked really well for the entire time Homo sapiens have been on the planet until we figured out how to burn fossil fuels and split the atom. I have this crazy hope that globalization will place a strong enough selection pressure on the species to reward organisms that think more than two generations out. That's my hope. My hope is that it won't happen with our 150, but maybe in those 1,500 faces maybe we can recognize, some will be people that live on other continents that we know through the Internet so that we'll understand exactly what our decision to eat a Whopper out of a styrofoam container means to the lived experience of someone in South America or Africa, right? My hope is that this virtual world that we live in, an increasing globalized society, that the friend you talk to at a weird time on a conference call because they're on another continent makes it into your 15. And their lived experiences become real to you. One of the greatest things that happened to me was managing a development team in Manila, in the Philippines, because they got into my circle of thought. I started to think, it's one thing to think like academically and like like a good, open-minded, wealthy American about international need. It's another thing to literally see on a spreadsheet what we pay those employees and why we work with them, right? Because we can, we have like 12 of those people for one American programmer, right? This, this, is, this is how big systems work. They anonymize everything. So if there's a hope, it's that globalism starts putting faces on things again. I don't think it's a shoe in which is, by the way, why I think the church really needs to matter right now. The church really needs to matter right now, and the church doesn't need to matter 
in like uh, trying to like win offices <laughs> or moralize about social issues. The church needs to put a face back on humanity so the species doesn't go extinct. That's, that's the terms I'm talking about. Like, uh, sorry if you've heard this because I think someone asked a very similar question real recently, so don't listen to the last two episodes of Ask Science Mike. But, like, if you talk to the nerds, like, what should matter politically? Whole different set of priorities. Priority number one for the species, CO2 in the atmosphere. Number one, easy. Number two, why CO2 in the atmosphere? Because no other justice issues matter if we don't have fresh water and food for anyone, right? So CO2 in the atmosphere. Number two, methane in the atmosphere. (laughs) The atmosphere gets one and two because we only know of one atmosphere in the entire universe that supports human life, right? After CO2, nukes. We have to do something about nuclear weapons. Why? Because Nuclear weapons send one, ma- one message to the world, and it's hashtag no lives matter. Because it's the end of the species. The next issue for the nerds, poverty. Surprise? Poverty, scientifically speaking, seems to be the root of most social ills. Right? How do we fix terrorism? Get rid of hungry and thirsty people. How do we fix, you know, justice issues? Poverty. Poverty, 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 poverty. Stop fearing each other and start feeding each other. Start building systems where every person has education and economic empowerment because the nerds realize this is the most violent species of primate on the planet. And if you look at our closest relatives, chimpanzees and bonobos, they're almost identical to each other. They've split very recently in the evolutionary history of the species. What is the difference between chimps and bonobos? Chimps developed in an environment where resources are scarce, and bonobos developed in an environment where resources are plentiful. Our nearest cousins show us the solution to conflict in humanity. Don't make scarcity an issue for humans ever. The smartest thing you can do to protect yourself is make sure your neighbor is not hungry. That's it. That's it. Open and shut. So, one day when a PhD scientist runs for president on that platform, everyone laughs at them. (laughs) Uh, uh, they're, They're talking about really well understood science. And if we don't get the resolve to think that way, instead of like like bathrooms or whatever. Like these are just not existential for the species problems. We know what the existential issues are, and they're so scary we don't want to talk about them. So I think the church needs to become the voice that says, let's bring the kingdom of heaven near. Right? And what's the the metaphor Christ used over and over and over and over and over and over and over for the kingdom of heaven? A table at which the poor were fed. Hi, my name is Daniel, and uh, I was a missionary overseas for several years in a city where it was 100% Muslim, and in that place, 
I really discovered a love for Jesus um, because traditionalism, the church, Christian infrastructure, all of that was stripped away, and the only thing I had was Jesus. Mm-hmm. And with that, I was desperate to share about Jesus with the fellow Muslims that were around me. But a lot of trauma happened, uh, very intense trauma, and I had to come back to America, and I expected to feel safe in the church, but mm. the church was the hardest place to come back to. Yeah. And I, I, I went to all the churches around the metro Atlanta area and just was not safe for me. And then I discovered your podcast. So thank you. It gave me so much hope and restoration and healing. Um, so with that, I was just thinking, and I, I mean no disrespect to this church. Yeah, of course. Um, do you have, is there a whisper or any uh, movement to start a denomination of your own? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, that's a no. Yeah. Me running from the stage, full trot. Huge no. Um, that's why is people can ask it if me and Michael are going to start a denomination. <laughs> Holy. A movement. A movement. Okay. Um, how does a dropout science guy, son of a Baptist and a podcaster. Sorry. Hamilton, I got to do there. Um, no, there are no plans to start a denomination. Because uh, I love denominations. Love denominations. I used to hate denominations as a Baptist because there was a one true domination, the Southern Baptist Church, <laughs> and a bunch of heretics. And then I came back to faith, and denominations were this sign that there's this terrible disunity in a church that was holy and unified. And then I read scholarship about the early church. There's never been a unified church. The, the church, the mother church, is called the mother church at first. Did you know that? The mother church was in Jerusalem until it was burned to the ground in AD 72. And the main person at that church was James, the brother of Jesus. And James had such respect from the Jewish leaders because he upheld every letter of the law. So even though they had this weird Jesus is the Messiah thing, he still upheld the Jewish faith. And uh, Peter and John worked closely with James in that church. And along comes this guy named Paul, formerly Saul of Tarsus, who literally tortured Christians for their turning back on the true faith of Judaism. And he was not around when Jesus was around. Never met Jesus. And then he's walking on the road to Damascus, and he sees a blinding light, that causes him to abandon the faith of his childhood, Judaism, and start to fight against an empire in which he was a citizen, Rome. I don't know if you know this, they put him in prison, the Romans. But there was such tension that Paul would go and start churches, mainly for Gentiles. So the church in Jerusalem was like, yeah, go for that Gentile. <laughs> Paul, yeah, you bring Gentiles to the church, Whatever. As long as we have to do it, fine. So Paul goes and starts these Gentile churches that also included uh, diaspora Jews who uh, couldn't speak Hebrew. So they couldn't read the Torah directly. And he says all these things about Jesus and then leaves. And then word about what he's teaching and starting these churches gets back to the mother church in Jerusalem. So they would send a missionary after Paul to correct 
Paul's bad teaching. This is history. And so then Paul would hear about the mother church basically being like, listen, he's, Paul's got a good heart. Bless his heart. <laughs> but this logos, like, that's Greek. Jesus wasn't Greek, right? So, so, they, so then Paul would write these letters to my church, my friends, how quickly you have turned away from the gospel. And James is like, what, are you kidding me? I knew Jesus, Paul. He's my brother. I know what Jesus was about. I talked to him. And Paul's like, oh, yeah? He appeared to me in light. <laughs> so... How many books did James get in the New Testament? Anybody know? How many books are attributed to Paul in the New Testament? A lot. Like at least 14. And why? Because the mother church in Jerusalem got burned to the ground in AD 72. And suddenly Paul, I'm sure he, I'm sure he was grieved, but suddenly Paul's writings are the only writings left from that time period in any significant number because they weren't kept in that church. So the first person to contribute most of the Bible was like a rebel outcast (laughs) to the mother church in Jerusalem. Jesus had been gone like five minutes. Like five minutes. And already the church is, is under this fundamental divide between is the gospel primarily centered in the story of Judaism or is the Bible primarily centered in the Hellenized culture of the diaspora throughout the empire of Rome? Because I don't know if you know this, Jerusalem just burned to the ground and Jews are despised by the Roman Empire. And I had this thing, if you follow me, I used to say with me and Paul it was complicated. Love Jesus. Paul's an idiot. And, and then I realized I literally think I saw Jesus in a bright light. And I, stopped, I, I wasn't a Baptist anymore. And I started saying these things in my Baptist church. They were like, are you kidding me, Mike? Are you kidding me? There's never been a one story of the gospel. Maybe... Maybe when Jesus was here, but according to the Gospels, none of us got it while that happened, right? <laughs> like the disciples, we have these stories of them in the presence of Jesus. And like, Jesus, is amazing. The kingdom of heaven is near. Can I sit at your right hand? <laughs> what, what do you mean? Like when, like when you throw the Romans out of Jerusalem, can I sit at your right hand? And Jesus would be like, well, I mean, the kingdom of heaven is like a little yeast, that's put into dough. Like, is that a yes, Jesus? <laughs> well, the kingdom of heaven, it's, just like, it's like a mustard seed. It's very small, but it'll grow into a tree where I'll find shade. Like, does that shade involve me at your right hand when we defeat Rome? I'm not starting a domination. I... <laughs> That wasn't a joke, but my timing made it seem like it was. But I am, in the spirit of Paul, telling people the church 
considers Gentiles that they are welcome because the history of the movement is everyone is welcome. Everyone is welcome. Who's welcome? The remnant is welcome. Who's welcome? The slave is welcome. Those who sit under the oppression of an empire. But here is the true and scandalous nature of the gospel. The Roman soldier was welcome. As a straight white male in America, the fact that the Roman soldier is welcome in this movement means a lot to me. That's who I am, right? I walk a gilded path through society. No one follows me around if I'm in a department store thinking I'm going to shoplift. No one tells me I don't belong anywhere. But when, when Roman soldiers spoke to Jesus, he had a weird posture with them. Why, why are you interested? Why are you interested in this story? And the same would happen with the wealthy. It's easier for a camel to pass through an eye of a needle than for you to do this. Why? What do I have to do? Sell all your possessions and give them to the poor. What do you have to do? You have to die to yourself every day. What do you have to do? You have to keep, pick up your cross and carry it. What a subversive story. To be, to be a Roman in the gospel is to set down your sword and to pick up a cross to suffer with the afflicted. Here's my hope. Here's the secret. You know the secret science mic plan? Keep doing events like this. And a lot of people show up. And churches, not just welcoming churches like Dunwoody, who is genuinely thrilled to have you all here, but other churches who listen on the internet scandalously, wondering what the literature are about. <laughs> and they go, how do we reach people? Why won't they come anymore? You love them and you don't judge them. You, you, you do exactly what Jesus did. And Paul later did, as you say, everyone, everyone, everyone is welcome here. Do the high numbers of the podcast matter to me? Yeah, because it represents real people. Do the sold-out events matter to me? Yeah, because it represents something that literally millions of Americans, literally millions of Americans long for God and are interested in Jesus and don't feel welcome at literally any church in their city. But like... Punk rock bands don't start corporations. <laughs> their job is, is to create a temporary community, and their job is to create art. Um, but why I like working with Michael so much is art leads culture. And uh, I don't want to tear the church down. I want to wake it up. Hey, um, I'm James, and this is my first time. I've heard a lot about you, but this is my first time actually hearing um, you actually speak. But It's so, terrible. I'm sorry. <laughs> I apologize if this is like something you've already answered before. If it's easy, you know. I'll be so happy. Go All ahead. right. <laughs> so I'm a school teacher, and also just um, the more I get to hear about my friends' lives and kind of create some vulnerability, I'm hearing so much of... Um, seeing kids struggling with dyslexia, mm. um, being on the spectrum, having friends share that they're bipolar, have, dealing with depression, and um, all these issues, right? And from my opinion, it seems like we live in a, such a society that values um, 
production mm -hmm. as the number one value, um, and which in turn views all these other people that are dealing with these kinds of things as damaged goods, and really there isn't, it's becoming a, a decreasing role for them in our society. So I guess my question is, I'm talking about, and yeah. What does the church do to, to stand up and say, actually, there is a place, but on a practical level of just not, oh, you're welcome in our service on Sundays, you know, but really, like, no, we value um, all people. And, and even though American culture says, yeah, this production and, and progress is the number one value, but the church stands up and says, actually, it's not. Um, what does that look like practically, though? I'm actually a fan of capitalism, for all I critique it. Uh, only because the other economic models seem worse. It's not that capitalism is good. You know what I mean? It's like a stone square wheel. Uh, but your other option is like tar. You know what I mean? Like it's, well, this will like hold an axle. Um, but the problem with capitalism is... That emphasis on productivity, especially we're almost like not even capitalists anymore in America. We're like hyper-capitalists. Like what is the mandate for a corporation to return value to its shareholders? You can do some really messed up stuff and fulfill that mandate. Don't worry, though. Google figured it out. Like, and don't be evil. Um, one of the most powerful moments I've ever experienced in any church was watching a young person with autism stand on stage on a Sunday morning and sing. And I've seen some seriously amazing people make spiritual music. I've heard the most talented communicators in the world, not just at church, but in larger is not just one of those powerful experiences I've had in church. It's one of the most powerful experiences I've had in my life. And we all learned something that day. You don't applaud and cheer for someone who has autism. It's overwhelming. It's terrifying. They've done this thing that is so alienating. I'll be honest, I'm an extrovert. So I walk out and I see all these people looking at me and I go, wow, I'm amazing, right? Um... <laughs> But right after I had a motorcycle accident and a double brain bleed and I stretched my vestibular system while wearing a helmet, I had anxiety attacks in crowds. I was like, this is bad. I just quit my job to talk on stage for a living. And I'm so happy that happened. It's the first time in my life I kind of got like why applause is terrifying to someone. Right? So we all had this moment and we did the most natural thing for normal, neurotypical, able-bodied people. Woo! And the person tried to protect themselves in all vulnerable areas and ran off the stage. I get accolades all the time from people in the queer community, from people of color, for showing up. <laughs> it breaks my heart every time. I've done the most basic thing. I've acknowledged your basic dignity as a human being. I have, I, I have a friend who I think is one of the most talented people I've ever met. She writes, and I said, I just, I'm sorry if it's creepy. 
I just, your work is so moving to me. And she said, you're the first and only white man who's ever said that to me. I shouldn't, this, it's, you know, I mean, it's like I'm getting a gold medal for like not throwing a tomato at someone. It's a weird dynamic. And in that moment on that stage, we created a space and we were all moved. And we still didn't get it, so we screwed it up. We got to start listening to different stories closely and carefully and graciously. We've got to learn that with only the best intent, no one does this stuff on purpose. That some of the things that we do that are the most sincere and most beautiful harm others, something as simple as applause and cheering. So we have to create new social norms. We have to know when to do this instead. We have to know when to do this instead. Right? We, and we, we made all this stuff up. Applause isn't like biologically driven. It's social conditioning. We have to create new social structures that create space for everyone. It's the mandate of the gospel. And what does that look like? I'm really consistent on this point. All the time, pastors call me and they say, how do I make my church more diverse? You make your platform more diverse. You make your leadership more diverse. The speakers you pay to come to your church need to be more diverse. What kind of diversity? Every kind you can imagine and the stuff you can't imagine that other people tell you about. And that includes different ability levels. Because here's the funny thing that happens. The church is uniquely situated to not think about returning value to shareholders. Do you realize that? That's a gift. This, this painful stuff we think about trustees and tithes and all the money stuff we hate is actually a gift. We don't have to think about profit structures. And we can create beautiful spaces. On the Liturgist podcast, we did an episode about marriage equality. We were so proud of it. So proud of it. And we released it. And it actually did shape the conversation meaningfully in the church among white people. You know why? Because there were only white people on it. We didn't, we didn't even occur to us. It didn't even occur to us. And so I have this, this incredible fear as I release that episode of all the blowback I'll get from conservative evangelicals who don't even want to have a conversation about people's human dignity. And the first thing I get instead was people of color saying, why is this podcast so white? And my instinct immediately was to get defensive. And I'm trying to do this thing for justice here. How dare you? And I remembered, Mike, you always tell people to communicate honestly without hostility. So I hit delete, 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 delete. You're right. Tweet. You can't just say you're right. We honestly didn't think of it. I said it was honest. And I got raked over the coals, and I should have gotten raked over the coals. I should have got raked over the coals. And, uh, and we made a decision on the Liturgist podcast that we wouldn't include diverse voices speaking on issues of diversity. We would include diverse voices speaking on issues of anything. In every episode. You know what happened? The podcast got a lot better. The podcast got so much better. 
And the audience got bigger. And the audience got more diverse. And the people that come to events got more diverse. And what we've been talking about lately is every person who's ever been on the Liturgist podcast, able-bodied, able-mind. Right? Our, our, our podcast embodies ableism in the same way that it embodied whiteness in the first season. So what do we want to do? Truly embody diversity. Right? And every church and every community can do that. It's really simple. It's really simple. Now, here, this honestly happens. <laughs> this is a real thing a pastor told me. I don't think I know any black people well enough to in- invite them to come lead in our church. Okay. That's a great thing you've realized. This is good. I celebrate the fact that you realize that. And now you, you have to intentionally change your social network. Because how can you expect your church to embody diversity if your life doesn't? Right? It's all choices we make. It's all stuff we made up. And so for accommodating people on different mental health spectrums, different ability spectrums, is to embody diversity not in the pew, but on the platform. Not in belief exclusively, but also in practice. And to engineer social norms that accommodate people. And when you do, and I, when I've been in those spaces, they are the most Christ-like spaces you can imagine. Jesus, oh, such an old metaphor, but I love it. Like Jesus just indwells in that space. The, the, the presence of God is so known because Jesus was not just for Jerusalem, and Jesus was not just for Rome. Hi, Mike. Hi. Thanks a lot for what you do. It's really meant a lot to my, uh, my faith. You've talked quite a bit about your coming back to faith and how you have a con- construct that you can view God through now. Mm-hmm. You haven't talked quite as much about the devil and how <laughs> he's really been left out of your work a lot. Yeah. And... Um, just to be honest, I think for a lot of Christians, at least that I've met, the devil actually plays a large part in their lives, yeah. literally. So I'd be interesting to hear you talk a bit about, from a neurological standpoint, if there's been any studies of what that does in people's brains when they think about the devil. Also, secondarily, if you could talk to just how your reconstruction went when you kind of tried to put him or leave him it out of it when you did your reconstruction, and also why you didn't think to make an axiom around the devil. Man, bringing it. Wow. Uh, For those not caught up with the inside crowd, when I came back to faith, I had to create a series of axioms that justified any storm of belief and, like, formalized God, the Bible, prayer, Jesus in scientific terms. No big deal. Um, They fall woefully short of Christian orthodoxy, but that wasn't the point. The point was for my inner skeptic to not make the rest of me feel like an idiot every time I prayed or every time I tried to go to church. That's all they were for. I made them for me and not for the world. (laughs) And uh, one person I had just met in vulnerability told me he didn't believe in God anymore. I told him my axioms. His name was Michael Gunger. And then he blogged about them. And, and he called me Science Mike in his blog post, and then everybody started calling me Science Mike. And, um, and then those axioms, yada, 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 uh, have been read like 600,000 times on my website. Um, 
And I don't have an axiom for the devil. The closest I have is an axiom for sin. It's in the book um, and on my website. And the reason I didn't have an axiom for the devil is I didn't think the devil was a thing at all. And when I thought about the devil or demons, they raised too many philosophical objections to my idea of God, and they just made me feel a lot of doubt. And it, I had this weird, weird conversational dynamic because I do this thing. One of my favorite things in the world to do is drink two glasses of wine and then talk politics and theology with my mom and my pastor. True story. <laughs> totally, 100%. As soon as I get home to Tallahassee, I'm like, so when are we going to Betsy's house? Because uh, I'm going to eat true glasses of wine, talk about politics and theology. Uh, because... My mom and my pastor, arguably the two most significant uh, spiritual forces in my life, are both real big on the devil thing and really big on like demons or like beings. And I'm like, but wait, wait, wait. Do you not see all the philosophical problems this raises with God? The God is all good, all powerful, in, in, in your model, not mine. God is all good and all powerful. But it just, like, allows these beings to exist and wage war upon humanity? It'd be like, like, I'm not all good or all powerful, but it's like my children need to understand the value of suffering. So I'm just going to release beg bugs into the house and not get rid of them, even though I could. <laughs> I actually said that to my mom and my pastor. But that was a three-glass night, and that doesn't usually happen. <laughs> And uh, <laughs> I'm like, Mom, how do you know the devil's real? Because I know. You can't say that, Mom. Like, I need, like, a rational justification for why I should accept the idea of fallen spiritual beings who have in some way been empowered to, because I've met the devil just as much as I've met God. Oh, appeal to experience. Logically messy, but hard to refute. <laughs> I still don't have an axiom for the devil. I still tend to use that sort of language hesitantly. Here's the thing you got to remember about me. There's a reason I start every event, every event, saying I don't have a college degree and I'm not an ordained pastor. Because my work is actually about living the messy progress of rebuilding my life in public so that other people who don't feel like they have it all together realize they're not alone. And you just, I, ha, I make it look really nice because I'm a good communicator. And I make it just look like, uh, like this beautiful city, but a lot of the buildings are hollow. <laughs> and you just walked into an empty building. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. So you walked in. So I don't know. I don't know. Here's what I do know. Uh, let's talk about how long have I been really into the Trinity again? When did I talk to Richard Rohr on the podcast? Like this spring? So like just before that, uh, uh, Rob introduced me to Richard Rohr, and we talked about um, artificial intelligence and the Trinity. <laughs> so he wanted to talk about AI. I want to talk about the Trinity. And I was like, this trinity stuff blowing my mind. And so the idea of Christ introduced the idea of Antichrist to me. 
And so I could imagine that in the same way that Jesus represented an incarnation of Christ, and the church would say the only full incarnation of Christ, but that when we model our lives after Jesus, we all become more limited incarnations of Christ, that sometimes uh, people can also become incarnation of Antichrist. I think sometimes we call those people demon-possessed. I think sometimes we say those people are motivated by the devil or Satan. I mean, let's be honest, the biblical language for this being is quite diverse. At some point in church history, they took, it's like if you, took, if you took Harry Potter and made all the Death Eaters Voldemort. It's like the same kind of literary idea. It's like it's all, it's all Voldemort. Is that not true? Oh, I just thought it was really good. Anyway, sorry. <laughs> Apparently, I took the Harry Potter analogy too far. But literally speaking, they took these different names from different times and cultures, um, and they just kind of called them all one, one being, which I'm actually okay with, because we're talking about, like, what would a unique incarnation of Antichrist look for, look like? I think we see it all the time, by the way. I think we're in an age where Antichrist is so often embodied in, like, I don't really care about carbon in the atmosphere. I really like this big, giant SUV. I don't really care about what kind of labor is involved in the production of my clothes. I don't really think about that. But sometimes, like, we actually get a gleeful excitement about hurting other people. Like, if we disagree with them a lot, if we just, like, have you been on Facebook as we approach November? Like, it's not just about talking about who's most qualified or who's criminally unqualified. It's also, like, forget you. Like, I actually want to make you suffer because of who you support. I want to make you suffer for who you support. I, just don't, I don't want to just convince you what might be, what might be best for culture or, or, or society. I want you to hurt. My mom says that's the devil. Who am I to disagree? <laughs> that's not the first time someone's asked me to write a Satan axiom. Uh, I worry if I did so... I would alienate more people than I help. Uh, so, you know, it's just my theology is, is rough and unfinished. Um, but I also know you, you spoke to something very true there. For many people, their lived experience embodies spiritual warfare more than mine does. And some things make more sense with that metaphor. So I'm very reticent to, to, to take them from it. But I was the kind of kid who, other than being really bullied, grew up incredibly privileged. So when I got really into prayer, like when I was like 9 or 10, I prayed for the devil every day. I wanted the devil to get saved. (laughs) True story. I asked Jesus every day to save the devil, because if Jesus could save the devil and the devil stopped tempting people, then lots more people go to heaven. That's a true story. I've never told that publicly. Greg, delete that. No, I'm just kidding. Um, I just, I think it's, it's too far from my lived experience. I mean, that's the thing. Maybe you should write a devil axiom. No? <laughs> if you do, I'll post it. That's my deal. Thank you. All right, so this one is uh, a little bit less practical in real life, a little bit more theoretical science and uh, philosophy. As long as it's easy. Um, probably not. 
So I was content being an open theist before I started listening to your work. Uh, <laughs> okay. It was my inner defense against Calvinism or just determinism in general. We are going hard in the theology terms. Okay. Okay, so I started thinking about physics after I started listening to you. Mm-hmm. I've always liked physics a little bit, but mm-hmm. I started thinking about classical theology says that God is, you know, omnipresent, that he's everywhere. And I started thinking, okay, well, if God is everywhere and he exists in all, if he's a spatially infinite being yeah. and exists in some sort of relativistic now for him, mm-hmm. Couldn't he theoretically, from any one point of creation, observe any other point of creation instantaneously? Yes. Wouldn't that mean that by his very nature of being physically, spatially infinite, yes. be able to observe all points in time, whether or not he had foreknowledge or not? Yes. So what does that do for determinism? Wow. <laughs> okay. Just uh, so you know, this is kind of wrecking my faith a little bit. Let's wreck your faith. Okay, we'll fix that part. Um, <laughs> woo! I'm going to assume not everyone knows the terms Calvinism, determinism, and open theism. Is that a safe assumption? Yeah, yeah okay. Calvin, John Calvin, a theologian, uh, played a big part in the Reformation. Uh, the Reformation is how we got Protestantism, right? Um, and he, he came after Luther, Martin Luther. Uh, but he came and he had this reformed view of Protestant theology. And the center of the gravity of the American church is reformed. And reformed theology has a number of points to it, or Calvinism. One of them is that everything is predestined by God, uh, which means people who are saved because Calvinism includes eternal conscious torment for people who aren't. The people who are saved are elected by God. So if you're elected by God, then congratulations, eternity in heaven. If you're not elected, I'm sorry, our consolation prize is pretty bad. I don't mean to make light, but it's such a heavy issue, I have to make a joke or cry. And so that's Calvinism. Like the worst explanation of Calvinism ever. Um, the, and, and, and predestination. Determinism is a different idea in physics. And that's that uh, everything happens due to consistent physical laws. Everything is determined by physical laws. And it's like a physics predestination, uh, basically. And then open theism is an attempt to rescue theism. Theism, by the way, it doesn't just mean you believe in God. You can believe in God without being a theist. Buddhists do it all the time. Um, a theist asserts that not only does God exist, but God is a being with like specific will and agency and a plan. Right? Theism holds all those things. I see some theology nerds thinking they're he- shaking their heads in the af- affirmative, so that's good. Open theism is an attempt to rescue theism, especially among people who were Calvinists, to say that God is, you know, omniscient, omnipresent, all those things, but that God doesn't have complete knowledge of the future, that the, the, the universe is 
indeterministic in some way, and God leaves open, out of God's goodness, uh, the opportunity for creation to be co-created with God on an ongoing basis, so God doesn't know the precise final score of everything. But God's powerful enough to, to steer that process. I hope I'm not murdering open theism. Okay, because Greg Boyd's a friend, and he would be upset. Um, and then you have me, who uh, I'm a materialist. The universe is made of, of matter and forces and, and energy. And it's predictable. So, yeah, John Calvin was right. Thank you. Man, I thought that one would kill. As many nerds are in here. Um, no, so, so then I wrecked your faith by talking about relativity. So here's a funny thing about Einstein. Oh, if you've never heard this, I'm sorry, because you won't sleep well tonight. There's no such thing as now in relativity, because time advances at different rates based on what? Gravitation and velocity. It means, based on your local gravity and local velocity, the rate of passage of time can change. So in between any two points, now can shift backwards and forward relative to each other. In practical terms, if you take two points and you put them 10 billion light years apart, that's a long way, admittedly, and you change their relative velocity by like 800 miles an hour, from, from away back, you can shift the nowness that they share by more than the span of human history. I don't believe that. Well, it makes GPS satellites work. Relativity is not fringe science. And so it implies that all points of space-time always exist. So the past isn't gone. The future is not yet to be formed. All coordinates of space-time, a single substance of four dimensions, three spatial, one temporal, at least three spatial, um, that exists. So, like, in theory, you're still getting here tonight. And you're still being born and your great-grandchildren are already there. They just happen to be at a different coordinate than you're experiencing right now. Eek. Ooh, so then, but wait, wait, like, thanks, Mike. If that's true, then there is no free will. Probably, I mean, yeah, you make a good argument that way. I'm a compatibilist. Uh, and so compatibilists, man, we were getting real nerdy. Um, compatibilists believe that free will is actually compatible with physical determinism, that physical determinism is the mechanism of action of free will. Oh. Uh, and a lot of scientists say we're idiots. Um, but there are, like, legit philosophers and neuroscientists who are compatibilists. I'm not, like, totally alone there. What does this tell us about God? This is actually my favorite part of physics. We make God like us so we can understand God. We, we ascribe to God knowledge and consciousness and will and agency. By the way, all of those things are based on this moment happens, then this moment happens, then this moment happens, then this moment happens. But any God that's compatible with Big Bang cosmology or Einstein's theory of relativity is weird. 
any being that can simultaneously embody all possible points of space-time? Any be- By the way, if you run the clock backwards long enough on physics, shh, you get a singularity. We don't think singularity has time. It turns out this idea of an eternal and unchanging God makes a lot of sense in physics. It just makes all the sense in the world. But how do we relate to an eternal and unchanging God? By being a Christian. Seriously. That's the whole point of Jesus, is to put God in a face, to have God tell parables, to have God not just suffer, not just experience joy, but to have a temporal consciousness. So when I have these, 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 these moments of a God I can't understand, an infinite mystery, a father creator of a trinity, I, I contemplate that God through Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, the incarnation of the Christ of the Trinity. And in that God, I find a God I can relate to and understand. Now, there's this incredible beauty and mystery that I find in a God of relativity and in physics, Uh, but it confuses the heck out of me. And it makes me feel small, and it makes me feel unknown. It makes me feel like God couldn't possibly know me. And that, that is actually, to me, the beauty of Trinitarian theology. To put a God in three. A God in three. Now, I've talked a lot about the Creator and the Christ. But the most amazing thing about Trinitarian theology is you take the infinite mystery that once dwelled in a temple in Jerusalem... And from that point, emanated holiness out to all the earth, and you make the temple people. And now the infinite mystery dwells within you. It actually, to me, sounds like Neil deGrasse Tyson saying that we're the universe thinking of itself. Like we literally are, we come from God. We come from God. This, this, this idea of being indwelled with God is is what it is to be a created being. And I think that's beautiful. It's really not well stated scientifically. But I've found most of the time, we'll end on this, what I have found over and over and over and over and over and over is our faith falls down when we try to master it. That's when it falls down. When we try to get to the the boss battle in the video game and get a high score, I figured out God. That's like saying, I finished the internet. (laughs) You don't finish the internet, and you don't figure out God. That that God is not a million or billion or trillion or septillion or oxillion piece puzzle. God is a companion on the journey through the path of life who gave us the gift of the journey and is also the path. God is part of everything that we do and everything we understand and and everything that we don't. And I, I use this image in the book, but the traditional approach in the West to knowledge is to wrestle with reality like a coal miner 
or a diamond miner. And to, to pull this gem out of the earth, this truth that I've discovered through the power of my intellect and to guard it with a closed fist. And I don't do that anymore. It's a, it's a bad game. In trust and gratitude, I hold my hand out like this. And sometimes these little butterflies land, these bits of truth, these bits of beauty, grace, and love, and I appreciate them, but I never try to hold them because it would crush them. They're delicate and they're fragile. And when God gives us gifts, they may not be forever. How many of you have a story where what you once thought about God doesn't work for you anymore, and yet you still keep talking about God? The butterfly flew away. But, but we're happy in faith when we learn to be grateful for what God gave us and look forward with anticipation with what gift we'll receive next. Don't try to win the video game. Enjoy the gift. So you've done it. You've listened to Ask Science Mike another week. Sorry about that. Uh, man, stop bringing such hard questions, people on the internet, now I see in person. I requested all future tour stops easy questions about simple, well-understood ideas in science or theology, none of this tough stuff. Uh, if you'd like to see me on tour, go to findinggodinthewaves.com slash tour. I'd love to see you. I want to thank Greg Nordine for editing the show, Andrew Galucky for his work in pre-production, and all of my good friends, the patrons on Patreon, who make this show possible. Thanks for listening, everybody, and I'll talk to you next week.